Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. It's too easy to take a problem and think the most simple solution is the right one. Take climate change. We've put too much carbon into the atmosphere. The planet's main mechanism to take carbon from the atmosphere is trees. So plant more trees and all will be well again. Right? Hmm, not quite so. As my guest today, Alad Jones, explains. Alad is a social impact pioneer and the president of the National Farmers Union, Comrie, in Wales. Though I'm not sure he'd call himself a social impact pioneer. But when you hear the wisdom with which he explains deeply complicated systemic challenges across land management, agriculture, food supply, nourishing people, and climate change, you'll understand why I think he is. This will be no black and white conversation of easy answers. This is a deep look into the knock-on effects of trying to do the right thing when balancing food supply and climate action, and why wisdom comes from having everyone's experiences brought to the table. So, Alad, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. It's pleased to be with you. So, Alad, I wanted to start our conversation today. You are the president of the National Farmers Union, Cymru, and an eighth generation farmer. How do you balance your responsibilities to both the current generations and future generations? Well, Katie, I don't know where to start, to be honest with you. But when I mention the fact that I'm an eighth generation, it just reminds me, to be honest with you, of a sense of responsibility. Because I suppose farmers, you know, those involved in agriculture, wherever they farm across the world, uh, are in a long lineage of people who've been working the land, caring for the the environment and looking after their animals. So it reminds me that hopefully there'll be generations coming after me. And that sense of responsibility of returning something back you know, conscious of what we've received from the generations that have gone ahead of us. So that's why I've probably been involved with NFU Cymru for quite a number of years. But I must confess to you, Katie, um, when I was younger, my dad was very much involved with uh, National Farmers Union. And I was a little bit sceptical and I thought it was something for the old fogies, you know, that they could go on to their meetings in stuffy rooms and chat away. And I was quite happy to stay at home and do the the, the farming, if you like. So I was a little bit uh, sceptical, I suppose, at the time. And Dad kept on inviting me to come to meetings. And I kept resisting. Anyway, one day I yielded to the invitation and I decided, well, I'll go. And anyway, I went and I listened and I listened and I was blown away by the level of information and knowledge some of these people had. And 
and that yes, they were slightly older, but I suppose with age comes some wisdom as well. And you know, I just hung on to every word that they had to say, and I was from then on I was hooked. So I got started becoming more involved in the work of NFU Cymru, going to more meetings, getting a further understanding, much further than just our own farming system. Sometimes you can get a little bit insular, you know, and you just think about your own farm. But there is a much, much, much larger uh, picture. As you and I know, having, having been to COP27, it's a huge community of people. And yet, we all have a responsibility. And that must be the message. Sometimes we think that perhaps political leaders take the decisions or make the decisions or policy formers make policy. But if we're not there contributing, influencing policy as well, we will be in a poor place. Because I fundamentally believe that just ordinary people like ourselves who have a grassroots, you know, for lack of a better word, grassroots understanding of, you know, the real issues um, on a day-to-day basis. We are the important people, really, who should be representing whoever we represent and making sure that, you know, politicians or policymakers, wherever they are, get a good, firm understanding. And another line I always say, Government leaders, politicians, they don't have a monopoly of wisdom either. And so there's an important fact that uh, they take heed of what ordinary people have to say. Uh, So that's the crucial part. So that's me. That's how I got involved. And um, so uh, I'm now president of the NFU Cymru. And I've been deputy for four so I'm only nine months into my presidency. It's a big step up from, you know, when I was deputy. But there again, I had a fair understanding of what was involved. But the, the, the scale of things is still growing on me. And as you say, that huge responsibility. Alec, you mentioned that we met on the fringes of COP27. I was just wondering what you found there. How did you find the climate conference in Egypt? And you know, what do you really sort of take away from it? Well, I'd never attended a comp, COP conference before. My predecessor, John Davies, attended COP26. So, yes, you know, I'd spoken to John. I was aware of the things that were going on. But I'd never imagined the scale of the conference. And so I suppose the first day, well, you know, my eyes were open really to the scale of the events and, you know, the, you know, how diverse it was as well. But before going, of course, uh, I went with the, you know, wanting to represent uh, food producers. But I was in a, quite a big family of farmers and food producers from across the world. And within the conference, we are part of a constituency. And there's constituency for young people, uh, for business, trade unions, research and development. There's quite a number of constituencies, but, you know, I was part of the agriculture constituency. And it was great. I really enjoyed speaking to farming 
representatives from all across the world and getting an understanding of the issues that they were facing with a commonality amongst us that we were all looking after the environment, producing food, feeding the, the nations. And one of the messages that came out of COP26 was the importance of, yes, driving climate change, you know, addressing climate change, you know, and that's crucial. And there is an emergency on us all, really, to take heed of the warnings that we see around us with climate change. And of course, who one of one of the first industries to suffer because of climate changes is agriculture and food production. And it was quite sobering listening to a lady from from Kenya who'd gone through a drought period and she'd seen 80% of her cattle die of starvation in front of her eyes. Now and you know some of it. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure part of the problem is climate change because the weather. You know the extremes of weather that we are facing. Because we've just come from out of a drought period this summer uh, here in Wales, as you've done so as well in England. But what um, my farm suffered doesn't really bear comparison to what other nations are suffering. Simply because, at least. Well, in normal times, of course, we have a you know a reliable rainfall. But if we don't have reliable rainfall, we still can purchase feed. Uh, some farmers can irrigate. We have fertilizer. Yes, fertilizer is very expensive, but yet again, we do have fertilizer, and that we also have you know a certain amount of reserves in the system. But those those things, uh, you know, those comforts. Some farmers in other parts of the world simply do not have. So the realization of you know, how difficult it is for farmers in other parts to deal with climate change is is, is paramount for all for all of us to appreciate it. So going back to COP26, uh, a central message that came out was that yes, we need to drive dealing with climate change, but at the same time, and this is the crucial message, maintaining our ability to sustainably produce food. And that was a crucial message. And I think, you know, if you found it, Katie, but there was a lot of meetings that I attended where there was mention or, or the topic even was food supply or food security. The word sustainability came up so, so many times. I can't believe it how many times sustainable food production came up. But that's the reality, isn't it? We have to make use of our resources today in a sustainable way. And the sustainable way is that it doesn't impinge on the ability of future generations coming after us to produce their own food. So caring for the environment, our soils, our air, our water, our pollinators, our biodiversity, these are all things that we have to be aware of. But the pressure pressure is undoubtedly population growth and while we were over in cop i think it was on the 15th i think it was in case that they were saying that uh, that was the day that we hit uh, 8 billion global population so it was fitting in some ways that that milestone was remembered um whilst we were at cop 
and just reminding us of the fact that you know the demands of the global population for a limited resource and the diminishing resource as well, which is our our soils, our lands, to feed people, is becoming uh, extremely tight, and it's it's we, you know we're almost reaching a point where it's in a crisis uh, position. I think when we were chatting, uh, when we met, I mentioned to you a piece of work that came out of the Food and Agriculture Organization back in 2012 or 13, whenever we hit 7 billion. And I do remember this work because it stayed with me for a long, long time. And I've been like a little, like a prophet in the wilderness, mentioning this piece of work for a long, long time, just to remind politicians of the crucial element of having food availability. When we hit 7 billion, FAO looked at uh, where we were in 1973 when we were exactly half the global population, so 3.5 billion. And back then, thankfully, due to agriculture policy and part of that policy came out of the Agriculture Act uh, of 1947 in the post-war government of Clement Attlee. It was to promote the availability and production of food, because after two world wars, Europe was starving. The principles of setting up the European Union was to stimulate and to supply food for all people at all price points, and that food should be safe and affordable. And so I I regard those as noble principles, because if we if we don't have the um, drive and passion to look after you know all people in society then we are you know we are poor people because those who suffer first and foremost if there's a lack of supply is the poorest in our society and i'm not comfortable with that so the those european policies were so successful that by 1973 at 3.5 billion there was enough food in storage if all food harvesting was to cease globally, or a cow milked or, a, or, a, or an egg being laid, there was enough food in storage to feed us for 42 days. Now, the shock and horror was that when we hit 7 billion global population, that figure was now four days. Now, I've got no idea what that that's, um, res- those reserves are now. You know, once we hit eight billion, uh, the war in Ukraine has demonstrated. You know, it's, it's caused a huge amount of turmoil. Uh, the availability of the food that was grown in Russia and Ukraine is having a huge impact on on some, especially the North African countries. We've seen huge increases in food inflation here in the UK. And the reality is there are people here, and some of those people live very close to us, who are probably going out a meal today. The um, David Beasley from the World Food Programme stresses this very often, you know, there are 850 million people daily going without a meal. And, you know, let's not forget, you know, these are not people living in other countries. Some of these people are living, you know, uh, here back in Wales and in England. Um, so I'm very, very concerned, to be honest with you, Katie. Um, 
the impact that it has on our societies. And if we don't deal with them, it's going to cause a, a lot of social pain for many, many people. So this is a very, very important uh, subject, you know, the availability of safe and affordable food. And don't don't think it's cheap food either, because there's a danger that in our drive to produce cheaper and cheaper food, you can easily reduce the value of that food. Now, I'm careful what I'm saying is the reason is natural food unprocessed is far better for us than ultra processed food. Um, the reason is because the processing adds not only sugar, but it also adds um, salts. It also adds all sorts of unnatural chemicals, which is reducing the true value of food. And it has impacts on our health. And we must remember that our health is only as good as what we eat. You know, there, yes, of course, there are other things, you know, diseases as well. But in terms of food, you know, we, we've got to get back to the understanding of what healthy food looks like and wean, wean ourselves off this addiction to both sugars and, um, and salt as well. And I fundamentally believe that a balanced diet is what we all need. And, you know, we could spend ages on explaining what a balanced diet is, and probably we need probably more, more um, able to talk about, you know, these human nutritional needs. But I think the conversation needs to be had. So true cost value of food has to be put in consideration of, you know, how we produce it. The people are getting a fair wage for producing it. Uh, there's less waste. I'm horrified, absolutely horrified, of the level of food wastage uh, globally. And it's not food left on the side of the plates. Yes, it might be part of the problem. It could be the food that's, you know, perhaps it's gone over its date in the shelves. Perhaps it's food that was wasted during processing. Perhaps it was food that, you know, never arrived. Uh, at the distribution center or went to waste. It might be food that was not harvested in the field. Tw nearly 25% of our fruit and vegetables were not harvested in 2020, simply because of the lack of people to do the work. That's horrifying, isn't it, when you think yeah. of it? Food going to waste. Food going to waste. The, it must be heartbreaking for people when they you know grow food and yet unable to harvest it so that's another waste scandalous scandalous covid had parts of you know it was part of the reason why this happened part of it was brexit related and i think to be honest with you it was a great part of the reason but um the people available in our um, processing sites for meat, uh, the abattoirs, the packers. Uh, there was a huge shortage uh, in that sector. 
And I don't know if you remember back in sort of September, October 2021, sorry, 2021, we had pig producers unable to get their pigs to the abattoirs. There was a lack of labour. And because of it, retailers decided they would purchase pigs from other countries which were butchered already before arriving. And we had UK uh, pig producers being unable to get their pigs to the to the slaughterhouses. And 40,000 pigs were slaughtered on farm and incinerated. My heart bleeds, uh, Katie, when I think of the waste. You know, this is, a, this is one example, but there are many, many examples. Now, the other thing of waste is uh, crops and diseases and animal diseases. So, yes, we know we need to improve our ability to protect not only our animals, but our crops as well. Nature is not always very kind to you, know, because nature can actually starve you. Um, because, um, you know, pests and diseases and pestilence, plagues, African countries know full well of the locusts can take all their food very, very quickly in a matter of hours. These, these are startling things. So I, I know the figure that I've heard is that uh, 30% of the world foods produced is wasted. So addressing that in itself would be a huge contributor to food security and also, and also uh, climate change. So that's the consideration that I'd like to, you know, to throw in uh, for discussion, perhaps. Oh, my goodness. And there's such big pieces at it. And and it's that balancing, isn't it, of so many different systems coming together to talk to one another, whether it's about human labour, it's about, as you say, pests, climate, Mm. etc. In your experience, how do we go about tackling these kind of things? What are we doing wrong? Why, Why are we not finding this balance or is this balance actually happening but we're just we're just seeing the extremes that's just the ones that make it to the to the newspapers and and media oh Casey I don't don't know how to start to answer that question you know how do we address it well certainly population growth you know the demand on resources is putting a lot of stress certainly Policies, government policies need to be looked at um, in terms of maintaining some balance, you know, because especially when we are addressing climate change, well, we cannot have something that will mitigate climate change, but has a side effect of impinging our ability to produce food. And perhaps one of them is trees. We'll get on to that again, perhaps. But... The way that food distribution happens, um, it's, it's become a very globalized industry, isn't it? And historically, our food here would have probably been grown and delivered, you know, in the locality and we would have eaten seasonally. But these days we have um, things available to us that you would never expect to have uh, you know, at, at times of the year. But there's been, um, you know, p- people's understanding of, you know, how and where and when our food is produced uh, has been lost. So that um, separation, if you like, means that people will 
go into a retailer, they'll pick up a, a basket and they will whiz around the shelves and the basket will be full and off they go. And there doesn't need to be any thinking further than that. So we we can then um, use, we're using other people's resources to produce the food. We're using other people's water as well. So some of the fruits and vegetables that we, we would import, they would have been grown with another country's water. In normal events, you know, the water that we have here you know, comes from the sky and in normal times we have plentiful uh, amounts of it. But it's a very scarce resource in some countries. And if they're utilizing that water and it, it's for our own benefits, it might be causing shortages for you know indigenous people in those countries where they live so there must be an element of taking responsibility of where we source the food there might be and i'm sure there is we eat perhaps eat too much and too much of the wrong food the level of obesity in this country and the implications on health and we cannot disregard that is causing a huge impact on you know, the costs of the health service. So I, I'm probably not adequately qualified to speak more on, on sort, of, sort of nutritional benefits and how to better eat, but there are plenty of papers, and there's the Eat Healthy report that came out, I think two years ago, isn't there, where you know they were advocating a good balanced diet and it would have positive, positive impacts on our health as well. Um, just just be careful. I'm very concerned when th- there are people advocating, due to their thinking on climate change, that one of the ways to address it is to do away with animal protein. Now, I have my own opinion, and I think that sort of thinking is very, very dangerous. Yes, you know, if, if people feel... That, that's what they want to do. Yes, you know, it's, it's a free country and they can decide from their own. But actually, you know, broadcasting an ideology, um, it could be very damaging because people might be, you know, <laughs> taking an opinion based on other people's opinion and not really considering what impacts it might have. So um, I certainly believe that animal protein has an important part to play. And when you consider that uh, nearly 70% of the farmed land area is for livestock, and that is because those areas are more favoured for livestock uh, systems. Um, We just simply couldn't, in my opinion, have a food production system based solely on uh, non-animal products. Now, some people might be a little bit offended when I say that, but I'm firmly of the opinion that um, animal proteins have a crucial role to play in global human nutrition. And welcome anybody's feedback on on these pieces and and actually i wonder whether they're not so contentious when we're always framing it in terms of that 
how do we better look after our land? And you mentioned earlier, Alad, the question around planting trees, which mm. for us, for, for many of us around the world, has become a kind of, how do we solve climate change? Or oh, well, we need to go and plant some more trees. I know you have some thoughts on this and have potentially seen some odd behaviours off the back of it. And I wonder whether you wouldn't mind sharing them um, with others here, just if nothing else, just to make sure that we have a better understanding of the impacts of actions. Well, in basic terms, uh, trees and all plants material, anything that photosynthesizes takes carbon in. But what trees do, of course, is that they take that carbon in and it's stored in the timber. Now, if that timber, perhaps millions of years ago, that timber would have produced the coal that we've been using, um, you know, um, because it's all carbon that's gone underground. And fundamentally, climate change is about the imbalance of too much carbon now coming from below our feet and ending up above our heads. And that's the problem, uh, fundamentally, in simple terms. So we've somehow or other have got to reduce our reliance on carbon fuels that are coming up from below, so oil, gas and coal, and then weaning ourselves off those products and then trying to replace them with renewable sources. You know, that's another discussion. But trees uh, have been banded as you know a means of storing that carbon uh, in products. But that timber needs to be used to lock up the carbon. It has to go into building materials, if you like, and so that it stay there and it's locked away. But ultimately, um, that timber will rot away and there will be you know, part of that carbon which will be returned into the atmosphere. So, but trees have a have a place to play. There's no doubt about it. And uh, again, going back to Kenya, it's one of the discussions I had. Um, I thought um, the lady I spoke to was very enlightened on this project, and they were looking in their policies on uh, increased uh, tree planting. And thirty percent of the trees that they grew were for fruit. And they were very well established established for harvesting those fruits and making sure you know it was contributing to the local economy. And then twenty percent uh, were high value timber, which could be used uh, well in in um, cabinet making, you know all, all sorts of things where construction would be very useful. And then, 50%, if I remember rightly, then were the indigenous trees. And I stress the indigenous trees because these were trees that were native to Kenya and they knew full well that they, they grew well. And they were using those trees for fuel. Now, of course, you know, burning that uh, timber released carbon, of course, but the mere fact that they were taking in carbon as well. Uh, you know, the the net impact, they were less reliant on the carbon below ground. But we still we still need to address the issue of too much carbon above us. But, it, you know, it would be a good start if we were to use less from below our feet. Now, I think the example I was going to give you 
back home in Wales is that um, there companies that have no ability to sequester carbon and of course to get to net zero and because we've legislated for being net zero for 2050 in this country companies are looking into the ways of making themselves net zero now if an industry or a business is their carbon is totally emissions based and they have no ability to sequester carbon well they're in a very difficult position because how do they reduce their emissions and if that those emissions are sort of fuel based well you know they they've got to be looking at elsewhere of how to make themselves net zero so what they've been doing is they they're buying carbon credits so that's offsetting their carbon emissions and one way of doing it is to purchase land plant trees and get the carbon credits um, because you know there has there's an industry grown on this very issue where carbon credits are traded so to negate their emissions uh, they are looking for credits now there have been several or many many purchases of land here in wales by companies based in all sorts of places in most probably in in london and they've been uh, having you know quite deep wallets they've been outbidding local young people young families for these plots of land and uh, so there's a social and cultural impact of you know their action now they're not doing anything illegal because there's nothing stopping them and you know it, you know the marketplace is fair you know and when if you bid you know if you if you're the the winning bid well you've won the the auction for example but I think that there needs to be a, a deeper conversation of what's actually happening. And it's actually policies that lead to these things happening. And if there was a, you know, a deeper consideration of the you know, social and, and economic impacts on, on the rural communities, I think people have to um, consider you know, these, these issues when they are forming policies. And so I fundamentally believe, yes, it's the right tree in the right place. There should not be a displacement of people who try and make their living um, in rural communities. We shouldn't be taking our productive lands that should fundamentally be producing our food away from that side of the industry. So we, um, I mentioned to you, we produced a report uh, just over a year ago on a tree growing strategy here in Wales and how we thought it should be developed. And we called it Growing Together. And we spent a long time on, on thinking of the title, believe it or not. So Growing Together. And you can go online and you can find uh, this piece of paper. And simply because you know if we are to deal with climate change 
you know, there must be a joined up approach where we understand the implications, you know, that all sorts of policies have. And we have to be very, very, very careful um, that we don't make mistakes. And I'll tell you, uh, back back in the 50s and 60s, uh, huge parts of land in Wales was bought up by the Forestry Commission for planting trees. And um, they planted on uh, peat soils. And, and now, now they realise that uh, they planted on peat soils. They dried those peat soils up and the carbon was lost. At least now we have the knowledge to understand that you know it was a big mistake what they did, but they also displaced people off the land, and so huge swathes of land here that was depopulated totally. So it disturbs the social fabric in rural communities, and this is not only in Wales. You know, just just bear in mind, you know, these are implications that could happen in other countries across the world. Oxfam, by the way, in July 2021, they they looked at the tree growing ambitions of different governments in different countries across the world. And Oxfam warned that the implications uh, would lead to a reduction in food supply and because of supply and demand, the cost of food would go up. And Oxfam warned, you know, and they stress this, who will pay will be the poorest in society. Because ultimately, uh, they will then bear the cost of climate change inequitably, I would say. So they would suffer. So these are implications that we've got to consider. And absolutely, and the intersections between one issue and another and knock-on consequences just need properly thinking through. I'll make sure I put the links to both the Growing Together report and also that Oxfam report into the words. Yeah, it be good. alongside, yeah. So anybody listening, you'll be able to find them in Mm. the links. Aled, I'm mindful that you have, through the NFU work that you've been doing, but also during COP, you had connected with lots of farmers from around the world. How does that help you guys? How do you work together? And, and what are potentially some of the outcomes in terms of increasing that food security whilst creating that climate resilience? Well, the NFU Cymru and NFU are part of the World Farmers Organization. So we are members of that organization and we share our thoughts and our values together uh, and how we should be lobbying on our governments, wherever they are, on policies related to climate, yes, environment, yes, and food production and agriculture. So we are part of a a family, if you like. Um, We might have different languages, but in some way, the language of farming is universal. You know, we understand each other. We understand the pressures. We understand what it's like working in all weathers, uh, challenges of everything, so it's nice, really. That's you know that appreciation, and I made some very valued friends. Uh, there was a, a Ghanaian um, member, um, lovely man, and um, and I a huge respect for him because he's been working on behalf of um, farmers in Ghana, and he's been doing it out of his own goodwill. 
and he's been able to sustain himself and his family um, by you know getting an income from elsewhere. But his passion and drive is for you know the livelihoods of his members back in Ghana, and so. But there were other people that I met as well, and but seriously now, food policy and agriculture has to be central in the policies of governments across the world. I find it quite embarrassing um, when, for example, uh, the new prime minister came into post and the reorganization of the cabinet uh, began and you know all the important posts get filled first and you're almost right at the end of the list when the, where the Minister Secretary of State for the Environment uh, is put in place. That probably sad, it saddens me, to be honest with you, because it means, therefore, that in their view, you know, the environment and food production and agriculture comes quite low down in their priorities. And I personally believe, you know, the importance of agriculture and food has to be much, much higher. Not, not, you know, not against other parts of the of the the whole um, government's position, but uh, it should be central. When I mentioned to you, you know, the stress and strain now of food availability globally, we are seeing food being weaponized. We are seeing energy being weaponized. I fear we will also find that water could be a critical weapon as well, of a lack of water. And all these things can and will impact on social stability in countries. And you can see it, it's happening today. It's happening today. Because there are parts of the world which are getting poorer and poorer, their ability to care for themselves within their own country is diminishing and the migration of people is accelerating. And the, you know, the social stability will impact on these countries. And it will also impact on peace. Um, the former president of the World former Farmers Organization, a uh, farmer from uh, South Africa, uh, Theo Diego, I remember him saying that um, uh, farmers need peace. And obviously, you know, if you don't have peace, you're unable to carry on with your industry. But he also said farmers need peace and peace needs farmers. And when you think on that side, you know, having food available for people, making sure that they're not hungry, they're not radicalized, that they are able to live within their own country boundaries, that they can look after their children, speak their languages. And, you know, I, I worry sometimes, you know, the whole social fabric could be unwinding in many, many parts of the countries, you know, across the world these days. Oh, thank you very much for sharing those important pieces uh, with us and hopefully resonates with a few people listening. I'm very mindful of our time. And so, Alid, I'm going to... Um, one final question. I would love your thoughts sort of in a couple of sentences, if not if possible. What's next for you? What where do you where do you go from here? 
I hope I haven't been too pessimistic, uh, Katie. I think we've got to be forward-looking. I do believe, you know, uh, the ingenuity of man has always allowed us to find our way through difficult situations. There's a part of man as well, unfortunately, that means, you know, we go to war and there are people who are abused and um, mistreated. But I think if we can keep on lobbying consistently, presenting evidence, having you know, lobbying with integrity, um, because we've got to be honest and clear about these things. We don't have sort of dubious mean of reasons for lobbying. That that fundamentally, the care of people uh, must be essential to everything that we do. So, science. Um, sometimes science, you could say, has plateaued in the last twenty, thirty years, but that needs to be accelerated. We need technology that will allow us to, you know, produce more for less inputs. And I'm sure it will happen, I guarantee you, because there are some very good people working on plants breeding, uh, and, you know, proper, good, honest plants breeding and, and um, management of our environment and resources. But Katie, if we could solve this um, food wastage issue, we would have done the world a huge favor so let's let us address you know what the reason for that food wastage is uh, that should always be you know the primary work stream at the moment but yes i do believe you know that there is there is a future for the generations coming after us but we have to take responsibility and i have no sympathy at all when there are those who the, their only ambition is, you know, to increase uh, their fundamental wealth at the expense of others. Now, that's just that's just me, really, and that's my opinion. But there must be, you know, an equity in the way that we deal with people. And, you know, I'm all for social justice and that everybody deserves to be looked after and cared for. And that they have good health, access to health as well. Health um, professionals should be you know, fundamental, but access to food, access to food, has to be there and paramountly as well. Well, on those wise words, I'm going to call this amazingly wonderful conversation to a close. Alla Jones, thank you so much for sharing so generously with us today. No, oh, you're welcome, Katie. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 